You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Good to see you all here this morning. And um, before we get into the James series, actually, if you have a Bible or a phone, we're just going to briefly look at Exodus. Yes, Exodus chapter 16. That's where we're going to start this morning. If you're familiar which many of you are with the story of the Exodus. You have God miraculously uh, saving his people and calling them out to be a people that would represent him, and he brings them out of slavery and out of Egypt. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 16, the nation sees a problem. They've been like, like I just said, miraculously brought out of Egypt and crossed over, and they end up in a desert. And what they really quickly clue into is there's no markets, there's no trading, there's no way to grow anything. We're, we're stuck here in this desert land. And there's an issue with water, and God provides. And now when we come to chapter 16, they come to Moses, God's representative, and they say, Moses, we've got no bread, man. We're hungry. We have nothing here, no way to get it. So in verse 16, sorry, in chapter 16, verse 4, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So God says, okay, here's the plan, Moses. Here's what you tell them. I'm going I'm to do another miracle for them. I'm going to bring them bread right to their doorstep. And this is a, a test of their faith. It's a test whether they believe in me, essentially. Because when Jesus sum, summarizes the law, he says it's this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. So here God is saying, I'm going to bring this to them and see whether they are putting their full trust in me, the provider the miracle worker. So, in verse 13 it says this, In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. So there's even meat that's provided there. And in the morning, dew lay before the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. So, in verse 4, God says, I'm going to bring you bread, enough for your daily bread. Essentially what Jesus even prays in the Lord's Prayer, their daily bread would be provided. But he says, don't take any more than that. I'm going to provide it for you every day that you need it. And then here in verses 13 through 15, it's provided. And they're like, shocked by it even. They didn't even know what to call this thing. And so they, they see that it's before them. And they, they take it in and they enjoy it. And then in verse 20 we see this. But they did not listen to Moses and God, because Moses was God's mouthpiece. And some of them left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and it stank. Some of them collected some and they said in their minds, Okay, I know God said every day he's going to provide bread for us. But just in case, like, come on, just in case he forgets, like, 
on Tuesday. You know, we're just going to keep like a little bit to the side. And that little bit that they kept ends up rotting in the jars that they collected. It's so easy, probably, I think I'm safe to say, all of us have a propensity, have a desire to want to hang on to a little bit of something, some sort of uh, tangible thing, whether it's manna in a jar, that's a little bit of safekeeping, or maybe numbers in a bank account, which James is going to talk about this morning, some sort of thing that is outside of us that is tangible that we can hang on to, even though we put our trust in God, a little bit of something, just in case on Tuesday God doesn't provide the manna. And so in our passage this morning, James is going to directly talk about resources and even specifically money. And he's going to address this topic kind of like really head on. So what I want to do first is just go through the text really fast. We're going to kind of skim the text, you know, like throw a skipping stone across it and just briefly look at each one. And then we're going to ponder what James is actually trying to teach us in this text. So in this section, which actually includes last week's section, so the the section that Gary taught on last week, from about chapter 4, 13, all the way to about chapter 5, verse 6, which we're doing today, James is addressing uh, rich business owners and landowners. And if you look at the text, there's even some um, debate as to whether James is talking about people within the church or people outside of the church. Some commentators say that in, you know, verses 13 through 17 in chapter 4, he's talking about people within the church, and so he's addressing them more um, intimately. But then when you look at verses 1 through 6, he's addressing people outside of the church, kind of like pointing them out because everybody knows that they exist. That, that's the way kind of I land as I read the text, that it looks like he's addressing a group outside of the church, but it could very well be that that some of these very business owners, landowners, the people he's addressing are sitting right in the context of the church. And so here comes James in verse 1, straight out of the gate, and he says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. James just straight out of the gate. And, And most of us know that wealth can actually buy us or can give us opportunities to, um, you know, skirt or to avoid a lot of pain in our lives. And what do I mean by that? Well, even within our own country of Canada, which is a really wealthy country, you know, if, if, if one of us got cancer in this country, we have a universal healthcare system that will kind of kick into action, that will help you either through your doctor or if you don't have a doctor, go straight to an emergency room and you will get the treatment that you need to help you. And it's going to cost a lot of money, but the, the nation itself has money to kind of cover that. But if you're thinking even, okay, I'm not going to wait in line. I don't really like the universal you know, healthcare system. It's too slow. If you have the means, and probably many of us do, if you have the means, you can go somewhere. You can pay for treatment. Like, you could fly to some other country that has, you know, groundbreaking treatment, and you could pay for that treatment and have it done to you. And there are millions and millions of people who have zero access to that. 
and they live in countries that don't have any kind of system even close to you know, Canadian universal health care. And so the, the great disparity is like on display, and we know that if you have a lot of money, you can, it can be really helpful at times. But James is saying here, he's trying to grab our attention, but also the listeners there. He says, listen, there's coming a judgment that your riches cannot buy off. There's coming something that God is bringing about over time and over history that you can't buy your way out of. You can't spend enough to kind of avoid this thing. So he's, he's like, here's what's coming. Then he goes on in verses 2 and 3. You can see the list there. James starts listing all these different things that they've collected. You know, the, the clothing and the watches. They don't have watches then. But, you know, the, all the stuff that they are collecting. And he says, all these things that you have accumulated are like rotting before you. Your clothes are getting holes in them. Even the most precious things. He says, gold even. The thing that doesn't really corrode here on our planet. He says, that thing that is so sure, that doesn't melt away really, other than like extreme heat, that thing is going to be useless. It's going to corrode under this judgment. It will have no standing before God. So then, what does he say in verse 4? Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which kept you back, which kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is not talking about some theoretical thing that could happen. James is saying, your business practices are on display here. He's saying the way that you are doing your work and the way that you are accomplishing business is through oppression and through, you know, taking from people what they rightfully deserve. So the, the work that they're doing, they are somehow being cheated out of it. They're somehow being tricked in a way that they're not getting full compensation for what they're supposed to be doing. And James is saying their, their cries that nobody else is hearing are being heard. And we live in a day and age where this kind of thing still happens. Even still in Canada. We might not see it that much. It might be hidden behind people's homes or behind, you know, factory walls. But definitely on a, on a global scale, there are people who do work. And because of their standing in terms of poverty or their inability to have power in any way, they are taken advantage of. They are underpaid. They are stuck in the system within which they exist. And James says, James wants to, you know, make it really clear that God hears them. God hears their cries. So if you've ever traveled overseas, and, and we lived in Africa for a number of years and traveled to Africa and to Asia and to South America, maybe you've had glimpses where you've seen or you've met people and you've heard some of their stories. Some of the ways that they have to live within systems that have pushed them down, where they've been, you know, lacking or they've been, you know, haven't gotten full pay for what they've done. And maybe you've heard those stories. But often those stories don't get told. 
And if, you know, if I wasn't up here telling a story, or if you wouldn't kind of sit across the table and say, hey, I was like in Ecuador once and I heard this and that, nobody else would hear that story. And that's only one of millions of stories that are going on around the world. And James says here, all these stories reach the ears of God. God hears every cry. God knows about every act of injustice. Every tear that is shed is seen by God. So then he goes on, verses 5 and 6. Here's kind of the, the summary, the, you know, the totality of everything he's been talking about. He says, speaking of the rich landowners and the farmers, he says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in, the, in a day of slaughter, and you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So James says, finally, listen, this is the result that after all of this heaping of luxury and after all of gaining of all these things, he says that your, what does he say there? Your hearts are fattened. So you, you're, you're totally like, it's affecting you from the inside to the outside. You've got all these things, these luxury things. And the end result is that your self-indulgence is leading to the destruction of others. And there's almost like a, uh, a callousness to what he's saying here. It's like there's indifference to what's happening. You're just accumulating, accumulating, grabbing all these things, and the person on the other side of that ends up murdered, dying. William Barclay, a Scottish theologian, kind of put the idea this way. He says this, If a man is forever concerned, first and foremost, with his own interests, then he is bound to collide with others. If for any man life is a competition, then he will always think of others, other human beings as enemies, or at least as opponents, who must be pushed out of the way, and the object of life becomes not to help others up, but to push them down. So Barclay is saying there, if this is your mindset of, you know, get all you can, do any at, at all costs, accumulate, 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 he says you're going to collide with other human beings and someone's going to get pushed down and someone's going to rise up. And this is James's conclusion as well. You have pushed others down for your own personal gain. Okay, we're... 15 minutes in, do we just like wrap it up there? You know, we just went over those six verses. They just kind of like, James just lays it on us. But in the end, we should be asking like, what's the point, James? Is this for us? Or is this for those landowners over there? I don't know, like, I don't know what you're thinking, but maybe you're thinking, I don't see myself like overtly in verses one through six. Maybe there's elements in there, there's things that I can take, but I don't see myself there. I'm not this huge landowner. I don't like have all these people working for me. I don't have, I'm not like practicing injustice directly to people. You know, I'm not trying to just live this total life of luxury. So James, what's the point? Am I in here? And I, I want to submit that there are two points to James's teaching here. And we're only going to focus on one of them, okay? The first one is this. James is calling believers to patiently endure. 
Many of the Christians that James is writing to were actually living in this system and were living, maybe a better way of saying it, was they were living under this system. And so James knows that, that they are being shortchanged, that they are living difficult lives. And so James is going to go on, and you can see starting in verse 7, he's going to call them to be patient. But we're going to talk about that next week. The second thing that James wants to do here is he wants believers to understand what money can do. He wants to use these landowners and these businesses and all that's going on in their lives to give us a glimpse into the power of money and what it's able to do. And remember, I've said, I think I've said this a few times, that James knows that ringing in the minds and in the hearts of his listeners is the teaching of Jesus. He's doing a lot of assuming. He's not like overtly repeating the teachings of Jesus. They were there. They, they may have heard Jesus' own teachings straight from his mouth. They may have seen or at least heard some witnesses. So James is assuming when he teaches these things, Jesus' teaching is loud in their brains and loud in their hearts. So what I want to do this morning with the rest of our time is to understand money from Jesus' perspective, to look at what Jesus actually said about money. Now, we can't look at all of it because there's a lot of teaching in the Gospels on money and, and all that you know, it entails. So this morning, for the rest of our time, we're just going to look at four things really quickly, okay, and look at them specifically through the Gospels. So we've got a bunch of scripture to read, so just hopefully it's not too quickly here. But we're going to begin here with number one. Number one in Jesus' teaching on money is this. Money is not yours. Money is not yours, which goes against, like, everything you learned since you were a kid. I don't know about you, but I literally had a piggy bank. It was pink, okay? It was a pink pig. And you put your coins in there, and you could put your bills in there, and you'd shake it, and you'd listen to it. And the big idea was, what's in this pink pig is mine, this is mine. It's not my brother's, not my sister's, not my mom and dad's. This is my piggy bank. It is my stuff. But throughout the Gospels and throughout Scripture, we see over and over again that the, the money that we have is actually not ours. It's not. Psalm 24 says this most clearly, I think. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So the psalmist says, everything on the planet, and he could have said everything in the universe and the galaxies, everything is the Lord's. C.S. Lewis expands it a little bit. He says this, every faculty that you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs, from moment to moment, is given you by God. So you sitting here, thinking, hopefully thinking a little bit, you know, uh, taking in, breathing in, all of this is God's. You're borrowing air from God. Everything that you have, the decisions that you make, the stuff that you do this week, the home that you have, all your finances, 
Everything is God's. You see, there's a difference between God and us. There's a lot of differences, but there's one big difference, okay? We can only make something and make a life out of everything that's here already. God is able to make something out of nothing. So when we look at Genesis, God creates the world. He creates everything. He makes that out of nothing. But we have to have something. So last year I made a little, um, a little table for my rain barrel. You know, I was collecting rain off the roof. And the little table is still standing, I'm happy to say, because I'm not like really good at construction. But, you know, I had some leftover wood from the porch that we made and I had some leftover screws that were just sitting around and I put that thing together and it's still there. None of that did I create out of nothing. I made that out of stuff that already existed and those boards and those screws were also made out of things that were previously existing in some forms on this planet. And so James here is reminding us God owns everything which includes your money. Jesus reiterates this, not directly speaking of money, but speaking even broader than money. In John 5, verse 19, he says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now here in the context, Jesus is speaking about his will and all that God is accomplishing. But in Jesus' humanity, he's acknowledging that as he was incarnate on the world here, he was totally at the mercy of all that God had begun and God had started. He did nothing outside of what God had already started. So rather than saying, okay, this is mine, and you know, I work these hours and it's in my bank account, it's got my name on it, it's got my sin number, everything's connected to me, Jesus would say, it's all God's. From day one to the last day, it's all God's. Secondly, money is connected to your heart. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has a long teaching on money and it, it, in many ways, it actually parallels James's teaching here. And you can hear it in verse 19 here. This, this will sound really similar. James is maybe even pulling, like quoting from this. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, listen, you have been created, actually, to treasure something. And, and usually, we turn that around. We treasure the wrong things. And it starts, like, from, young, from a young age. And maybe you remember this. Um, remember being a kid? Or maybe you've seen, like, a, a nephew or a niece or someone, and they've got this teddy bear, and maybe you can't even call it a teddy bear anymore because it's just so ratty and just gross. You know, they drag it around with them. They carry it everywhere. Or maybe it's like a blankie or something, and you're like, I don't know what this thing is anymore. It's just like this beast, okay? And they drag it around with them. But it's the most, like it's the most precious treasure that they have on the planet. And if they don't have it, they can't sleep. 
If they don't have it, you know, they're not going to stay at anybody else's place. It's everything to them. So from like a really young age, we've all experienced that or seen that, that we long to treasure something, even if it's like just a gross thing. Somehow in our mind, it's like this is the greatest thing ever. And so God has actually built into us a capacity and by design a place for us to to put our full treasure into. And yet sin kind of breaks that and we suddenly long for the very things that bring destruction. J. Paul Getty, I I read about him this week, who was a well-known oil baron in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in the 70s, he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. He He was worth multiple billion already in the 70s. And at the peak of his life, he was earning $20 million a day. Life, his personal life was in shambles. It was married five times, wasn't on, on speaking terms with any of his children. And he's quoted as saying this, I hate and regret the failure of my marriages, and I would gladly give all of my millions for just one lasting marital success. After running through it five times, he's like, I just want one. And yet, we can see from his own life, from his testimony, if you read about him, you're like, his, his only pursuits is the treasures that actually don't bring lasting peace, don't bring, bring lasting life. They are treasures that actually weren't meant to fully capture what his heart could actually hold. And so for him, and maybe this is an extreme example, it's just like a life of destruction before him. We were made for more than earthly treasures. And the kingdom of God is what we've been offered. Number three, money is a tool. So maybe you're thinking, okay, this this whole money issue is like, that's not my issue, you know? I get it. Some people are big into money and they're just like pursuing money and and business and all this kind of stuff. I, I don't worry about money at all. You know, it doesn't bother me at all. Maybe you've fallen into the other ditch, okay? There's the one ditch is like this total pursuit of money. The other ditch is like you just don't care about it at all, okay? And so Jesus' teaching is clear on this, is that money actually has purpose. Money is a tool that he expects that we will use well. And in Matthew 25, Jesus teaches a parable on stewarding money. So in Matthew 25, verse 15, he says this, To one he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. This is God the Father goes away. So God gives three different people different amounts of talents. And the expectation is you're going to use what God gives you for God's glory and his kingdom. Whether you're given a lot, whether you're given kind of average, or you're not given much at all. So the first two, they actually use it wisely. And they come back and they say, man, we've used it and we've increased. And, and, and the owner is like, this is wonderful. This is great. Look at verse 25. Verse 25 says this. This is the third talent. He says, so I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Here's the same amount. But his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. 
Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own, which was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has lost the ten talents. Whoa, Jesus. Sounds a little harsh. You know, sounds a little rough. Where's the, where's the lovey Jesus, you know, who's like, that's okay. You weren't really thinking about it that much. Here's another chance, you know. Grace, grace, grace. Jesus here is being brutally honest and clear when it comes to our talents, whether it's the, the money that we have, the place where we've been born, the resources that we have, like, you name it, whatever God has given to you, the expectation is that you will use it for his purposes and you will use it effectively. So for those who over-pursue money, there's one side of the ditch. And for those who don't think about it at all, that's the other side of the ditch. God really cares a lot from, from this text here. God cares a whole bunch about what you've been given. And there's an expectation can we live within that? That God is actually expecting a return on his investment. He's saying, I have not given you your life and all that you have just for you to live it. There is purpose. That money is a tool to be used, not to be over-pursued, but not to be forgotten. Number four, and this is our last one here. Money is not the root of your joy. Let me say that again. Money is not the root of your joy. Money will never bring the, the deepest kind of joy that we are longing for. And when we discover that, we, we enter into this new perspective on the world around us. In Matthew 13, verse 44, Jesus says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Jesus is trying to get our imaginations like awoken to this image of finding the kingdom of God. And when we find it, from this example, he's saying, you're willing to part with everything that you have. Anything that you can hold on to, you're willing to give that up because you have found the greatest thing, the thing that your heart most longs for. And Jesus says, when you do that, you put, to get, you put into proper orientation what your life was actually meant for and what your longings were you know, most desiring. But many of us, if not all of us, I mean, how many times have we looked online or looked, looked on Instagram or wherever we go to look at whatever we're looking at, and we've seen, like, the, the new best home or the, the new best truck or the new best phone or the new best whatever is, you know, most desirous for you. And then that desire suddenly becomes, like, the source for this potential joy that is out there. You're just like, it's dangling in front of you. And you could if you could just get it, if you could just get that thing, then you know you'd overspend this new, like, new frontier of joy. And so then we, 
overspend. We choose to overwork. And in the process, we neglect our family and we neglect our spiritual lives, all in the pursuit of this like potential joy. And we wonder why we're so tired and we wonder why we're so stressed out and we wonder why there's friction in the home and we wonder, we wonder, we wonder. And Jesus is saying, here's what you need to know when it comes to these things. Here's the reorientation that needs to happen in your mind and in your heart. And often, like, to link those two together is that you were made to treasure something that is beyond this world. The kingdom of God is what you were meant to treasure. And that's what your heart and your mind is wired for. Herman Bavink, who's a Dutch theologian, says this, Hence, all men are really seeking after God, as Augustine also declared. But they do not all seek him in the right way, nor in the right place. They seek him from afar. He is nearby. They seek him in money, in property, in fame, in power, and in passion. And he is to be found in high and holy places. Holy beings in, in separate, distinct places. And with him that is of a contrite and a humble spirit. Bavink is saying, listen, we, we just like search for God in all these places. We search for the kingdom of God in all these places. And the place where it is is actually right before us. A contrite spirit, a humble heart. So let's just for the last couple of minutes linger with this idea that there is Purpose in money, we've seen and yet this teaching, we just briefly went over those four things. There's purpose in the money that we have, and yet the longing of our heart, the deepest longings, and the, the deepest joy is actually found in Jesus and in the arrival of his kingdom into our lives. And so Paul in 1 Timothy writes about this in verses 17 through 19 of chapter 6. And we'll close with this. He says, as for the rich in this present age, so here's a, another teaching like James in regards to the rich. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or not to be proud, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So Paul says, listen, here, here's your warning. Don't put your trust in money or the stuff that you can gather but actually put your trust in God who gives you all that you need to enjoy life. So for many of us, you know, like this summer, just picture it, it's coming. You know, we're going to be able to like enjoy time by the lake, you know, in shorts and a t-shirt. It's going to be warm. It's going to be wonderful. For many of us, is, you know, maybe you'll have an opportunity to go somewhere, to, a, to another province or to, to the United States or maybe even to like Europe or somewhere and experience like the amazing, you know, the, the thrill of seeing new cultures and, and great things. Maybe you'll be able to enjoy some, some new food or something. Or like on Friday, I tried again the shamrock shake. Okay, I wouldn't recommend it. Too sweet. But, you know, just some sort of food that you can enjoy. These are the gifts that we can enjoy. And we recognize that, like, it takes money to do those things. And the Lord has put money into our lives for a reason. So, that's like the reality that we live in. But he goes on, verse 18. They, being Christians, are to do good, 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, and thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So here Paul is making clear that, man, we live in a world where we need resource, we need money, and we get to enjoy the world, you know, thanks to the grace of God. But we have this opportunity now to enter into this kingdom work that God is doing. To do good to those people around us. To use the money that we have to, to share and to be generous, knowing that really it's, it's God's to begin with, we're stewarding it for a little while, so we want to bless those people around us so that the, the kingdom of God and the work of Jesus actually comes down to the ground through our own lives. And then finally, he says, so that they, Christians again, may take hold of that which is truly life. So when we enjoy time by the lake and when we give to those who are in need, in all of those opportunities, we actually enter into what is truly life, the kingdom of God come down. So, friends, with your money this morning, James's teaching is clear. There's, there's a warning to be had for us when it comes to money. But Jesus's teaching is also clear. There is a great opportunity before us to expand his kingdom, to use our resources in the years that God gives us on this life. And whether we have all good days or even if we have bad days. If days come where injustice comes to our land and we as believers are, you know, we, we lose things for the sake of following Christ, there is a greater reward that is out for they, The greatest reward, which is Christ himself. And in Hebrews it even says that they, they followed Jesus and they had confidence in him. And in the process, many of them were oppressed and they, they lost homes, it says, and it says that they rejoiced nonetheless because their confidence was in Christ. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this passage. Thank you for teaching us for the bold words of James to challenge us and to remind us again of the sufficiency of Christ. Amen.